Hello and welcome to CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and on today's podcast, we're going to bring on an attorney to talk about a few things CISOs have to deal with to provide the legal perspective. And without further ado, let's welcome Evan Wolf to the show. Evan, thanks again for coming on the show today, and it's a pleasure to have you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. I'm a partner and I co-chair the privacy and cyber practice at Kroll & Mooring, which is a global law firm. We have about 700 lawyers in 11 offices, about 20 lawyers that, that focus on cyber and privacy and incident response, which is what my focus is. I've been a lawyer for 17 years. My entire legal career has been spent doing this. I've been involved in almost a thousand data breaches. I do a lot of tabletop exercises or simulations, but law is my second career. I start off life as a data scientist. I have a master's in geophysics. I worked for the government as a data scientist. And then um, at the MITRE Corporation for about seven years and was at the Department of Homeland Security for the first five. In a technical role, I have the hacker turned lawyer experience. And, and so I try to blend both in my practice. And law is what I spend my day doing, but since I'm a terrible driver and I can't drive Uber, my, my side job is I teach a class for the last five years at Columbia University with one of my dear friends, Jay Healy, it's a class called Great Hacks, and I've taught for about 20-something semesters, taught at George Mason before that, and, and I do a lot of other sort of think tanky things, including sit on the Sandia National Labs Advisory Board. So I try to focus on not just being a lawyer, but the whole practice of law, because I want to develop as many cyber literate lawyers as we can. And you've done all that and you're under 150 years old. That's a tremendous amount of experience. I have a lot of gray hair to prove it. Well, no, it's a real privilege to have you on the show. First of all, I want to make a little legal disclaimer because the show is going to cover legal topics. I mean, you are a lawyer, but these views expressed do not constitute legal advice. And of course, for real legal advice, you should contact your own attorney. And of course, here's a good question. Why is it that lawyers give out legal disclaimers in the first place? That's a great question. I really appreciate you doing that. I'm normally the awkward one that has to start off and end up giving a disclaimer. And while we want that is for a few reasons. First of all, because many people have heard about the attorney-client privilege. And the attorney-client privilege for any CISO or cyber professional that's involved in an incident, they've heard at the beginning of the call, some lawyers say something to the effect of, we represent the company, no one individually, anything, and therefore, please mark all your notes, attorney-client privilege prepared at the direction of counsel, and the privilege belongs to the company, no one individually, so the company can choose to waive it at any time. I'm sure we've all heard that a million times, and we never really think about it. Well, that's actually called the Upjohn warning, and why we do that is because if any information, any advice that an attorney is giving a client can actually be, is considered to be privileged, meaning that if there's litigation, that information can't be used, can't be used during discovery, can't be used by the other party, can't be used in, in, in things like negotiations or pre-settlement negotiations sometimes. And so that's a very powerful way of protecting information. And during an incident, you want the advice that the lawyer is giving around compliance or potential notification or disclosure or impact to all be protected under that privilege. The problem is facts can never be privileged. So the fact that we found a piece of binary on our network or this piece of source code, or we found a certain threat actors, that, that could not, that's not going to be privileged, but the impact and the analysis of it, and especially if we're doing bringing in third parties to do forensic analysis, that's why usually they're retained by counsel because we want that to be privileged as well. And the reports they write, because there's a whole lot of, as anyone who's been involved in cyber for more than 
a few days knows there's a whole lot of judgment and analysis and there's facts and analysis mixed together. But ultimately why lawyers give that is that you don't want to be creating that privilege with everyone listening to this podcast or everyone listening to a talk, because then if they follow that advice and it's wrong, there could be issues of ethical issues, but also you really, everything is fact specific. And that's where you really want to be seeking guidance from either your lawyer, or if you are going to, the other part of the privilege or part of creating an attorney-client relationship is the compensation. So if you are going to be following my advice, please write me a check and, and then follow it. And then we can go from there. Yeah. I have a friend of mine, Mark Rash who has been an attorney for a number of years and we've known each other for a couple decades. Yeah. Just about everybody knows Mark. He's been on the show. He's great. And at some point in time, I think everybody is him a dollar or bought him a drink or something like that said, okay, fine. Here's some consideration and now have an attorney client relationship. We joke about that a lot. Now you'd mentioned in your terminology, the word discovery, which I know, but not everybody necessarily knows what discovery is. So could you explain that? Yeah. It's like the cyber equivalent of fishing during litigation. When two companies sue each other, one of the first things that happen is they want to understand what are the other facts that the other side has. So they'll have request discovery orders. They'll ask for documents, all the correspondence between Evan and Gmark on March 14th, I guess it is. And then all those documents would be sent over. If they're sitting on my server, I would have to produce them to you. If they're sitting on your server, you would have to produce them to me unless we had an attorney present that was on those emails, they were marked privilege, and then they wouldn't have to be produced. And that production, in fact, I'm working on a case now where the production was 250,000 documents. Those can often be the most significant parts of the litigation. Also, that's where the company spends millions and millions of dollars because you have to review the legal definition of the discovery order. So is it all communications? between Evan and the GMARC in the history of our in, in ever, or is it just on March 14th or is it every March for the last 20 years? And that's why getting, not having to produce documents that are, don't meet the requirements or that are privileged is a really big deal for both lawyers and litigants. And my experience has been as an expert witness is that I'll decide to ask for this much. You go back to the judge and say, we'll give you that much. And then the judge says, all right, fine, here's what you go. And you get something down the middle and things like that. Yeah, I just want to bring that up because if we talk about that later on the podcast, then at least folks are familiar with the term and the concept of it. Is that basically, it's a little bit, as you had said, it's kind of like fishing, but in a way, it's the other side asking you to say, let me take a peek at your hand and let me see what cards you hold. And of course, the purpose for that is not to necessarily have a Perry Mason moment where you've wasted the courtroom's time because boom, this bombshell comes in here and everybody goes, oh, case over. The idea is you can head those things off in advance. And a lot of things settle long before they ever make it to the courtroom, simply because one side or the other may look at their own cards and say, you know what, this is not going to work. Or the other side has a lay down. We better work something out. But without getting too much into the specifics there, should CISOs have a CISO disclaimer? Is there something different about lawyers to make them special? Like I've never heard a CISO say, this is a cyber topic and I'm a CISO. This doesn't constitute cyber advice. So please contact your local CISO. I, I don't think that's a bad idea. I'm a member of a group of CISOs and security professionals called the Security Tinkers. And I often thought we should have our own sort of handshake and, and maybe gang sign. It'd be a three-way handshake too, by the way. Yeah. Since I started my life off doing a lot of encryption, it would have to be a, a, a public handshake. We'd have to have a private handshake that no one would know about. Sorry for the bad encryption joke. That is not funny. CISOs should be thoughtful, especially when they're making public statements. We've seen CISOs get in trouble recently in making strong public statements about the security of their network, but really about the security of other networks. And I've heard some people speak differently about this, but I'm generally of the opinion, having 
spent a while looking at network topology and, and, uh, and system diagrams is that if you've seen one network, you've seen one network. And I don't think CISO should go around saying you should always do this and you should always do that for two reasons. First of all, those statements could be used against you if you're ever wrong about something that happens. And since we know incidents do happen and will happen. And second of all, the advice could be wrong. In that even if it's talking about like I am or some of the more, what I'd say, sounded or simplistic areas of security, we, the, that fear is some of that's right. What I would use the word subjective or highly network specific. And so for those reasons, I think CISO should be careful about what they say. But before I get killed, I'm a huge fan and I spent more of my career teaching than anything else in that CISOs need to get together and share information and why I joined security tinkers and that the council security tinkers is because that peer-to-peer relationship and us pulling each other up and learning from each other is critical. And without that, I wouldn't be here. And I think most of us would not be here. So I'm not saying CISOs need to not talk. I'm just talking about public statements or statements that can be used in public forum. I think there's a difference between those things. And I agree. I used to say that if the the chief marketing officer of Pepsi and Coca-Cola got together, they'd probably end up in a fist fight. But if the chief information security officer of Pepsi and Coke got together, they'd probably sit down and say, okay, what are the common threats that we're facing? And what do you do? And what do I do? And we all sort of work on the same side of the table at the end of the day. And we don't really necessarily have to, if you will, fight out in the business marketplace because our competition, so to speak, does not represent the company up the street who's trying to do what we're going to do, but it's somebody who's trying to take away from perhaps both of us. And if I could just layer on on that, because if you look at the defense sector, there's probably no better example of that, where these are companies that both are battling viciously in the competition of contracts and sometimes even protesting. I happen to work at a law firm that's the largest government contracts and the number one government contracts law firm in the country. So we understand that both sides take that approach. And security is actually a component of how companies can think about competitiveness of government contracts. But I will say, having spent 20 plus years and working with the defense sector, that every CISO will take each other's calls. They'll work together. They have a very strong sort of what we used to call a sneaker net. And now we call ISALs and ISACs and information sharing environments. And that's been really, in some ways, definitional to how we protect the defense, not only within government, but across industry. So there are banking finance is another example where I think they just see amazing collaboration within the security community, even though maybe I shouldn't use the financial services sector, given the events of the last few days. But we'll yeah, go back to the defense. A little bit of excitement there, so to speak. But no, you mentioned defense. And if you think about DFARS, the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, those are the rules by which, as contractors, we go ahead and deal with the Defense Department. There's a whole list of DFARS and things like that and the like. And in fact, we're seeing the industry starting to define what the role of a CISO is. But DFARS has a regulation that explicitly states the role of a CISO is to be responsible for overseeing and implementing the cybersecurity program and enforcing its cybersecurity policy. So what should a CISO be thinking about to ensure they're doing enough due care and avoiding problems like that? Yeah, so it's a great question that CISOs have, first of all, I think in some ways we need to think about every letter in the word CISO, and the first is chief, is that they need to make sure that they are accountable and responsible. I often tell CISOs that you have to think about not only what is your lateral responsibilities, but your verticals. You sit next to the general counsel and the CFO, and or the chief legal officer and the CFO and the CIO. And even though you may be reporting to water many of these people, they are in many ways your peers and the CAO and the COO. 
And so therefore you need to really understand what is your relationship with your peers? What are the boundaries of where is information security and legal risk? Or where's the information, where's the boundary of information security and IT operations? Because there are boundaries across all of those and defining those, those, those horizontal boundaries is really important as is vertical ones, because you're also going to be reporting to the CEO and to the board. And if you're a public traded company, there is an indirect relationship to even shareholders because of certain new rules in the SEC. So you also need to really understand what are your equities there. And that's really where I think that sort of concept of do care starts with understanding those relationships. Then the next piece is really understanding the standards, understanding what are the requirements you have to protect your network? Are you a defense company? Are you a bank? If you're manufacturing, maybe, or if you're a consulting firm, maybe you are a bank and a defense company, depending on who your clients are. And, and then what those boundaries, you can then, because once again, I grew up as a system engineer more than a lawyer, then you can begin thinking about build, building your program in terms of what are the controls, what are the people, process, and technology that you need to implement it. And then the documentation of it. And that's where the lawyers are always going to talk, don't tell me, but show me sometimes. And, and that's really important that, that the part of that process include the documentation of it. And then I'll say two other things. The next, the first is think about your externalities, because even if you are a CISO and a single company that makes a single device and has a handful of customers, you still have external partners, whether it's your security partners, your cloud service partners or cloud providers or SaaS-based providers, or if it's insurance companies or other auditors, you're going to have to have these external relationships. And it's really understanding what is your responsibility during an audit? What are you responsible for providing versus CIO or the CFO? And as you start thinking about when you go every CISO, at least by now, has probably been through one, two, or many insurance rounds where you have to go through and sometimes describe, identify, defend. I think some CISOs would use some other adjectives that I probably shouldn't use on the show to describe what they do during the insurance round where you're battling to get a tower, getting your coverage. And really during that time is when CISO needs to think about what am I doing versus what are the financial decisions that, that my CFO should be making. Versus what are the decisions that others need to be making around that? And then the last thing I'll say is like SEC has become a real focus for a lot of reasons. I'm representing, we're representing a couple of companies that are dealing with some significant SEC issues. And, um, and really when it comes to dealing with regulators, a CISO needs to be very careful about what is the information security piece of that problem versus what is the legal risk versus what is the business and enterprise pieces. What is the overall, what we'll call sort of regulatory risk management that, that is going to go into what is, for example, with the SEC, a material risk decision, because just having a security incident where, you know, a certain number of devices were encrypted or a certain amount of data was stolen, that does not constitute material risk without the business context and the legal context. And so I really always encourage CISOs to hold hands in a somewhat uncomfortable and hopefully friendly way. With, with their fellow chiefs when they're going through these big moments together. So a couple of thoughts there. One is we talked about almost in passing the concept of due care, which really means what would a reasonable person do what, in this situation if they're looking out for the interests of the organization, maybe not just their own personal interests. And another term I've heard is negligence. Now, is that the complete opposite of due care? Is there something more than just a binary heads and tails to that? I'm not going to be creating standards on this, oh. on this podcast, as you said, due care 
really, it, it depends on what shoes you stand in, you know, what sector you're in, what is the resources and requirements. And so that really is, you, you use the word personal. Nothing a CISO does should or should ever be personal. They, everything they're doing is on behalf of the company. And that's something that I remind people just as I'm the lawyer for the company, not anyone individually. So is the CISO. And that's where that, that concept really has to do with sitting in your position. What are your roles? Negligence is a really important concept for the cyber and IT community. Because really it's based on, is there a standard of care? And the standard of care in the cybersecurity community has changed over time. Once, and it really depends what type of data, what type of network you have. If you have a lot of you know, encrypted payment card information, you still have to worry about PCI DSS. If you are just hiring a third-party vendor to manage all your payment card information, then you don't have to worry about that. So your standard of care isn't just based on what industry you're in, but it's how you manage your network and data and what are your requirements for that. So in addition to the sort of the, what is that duty? What is that duty of care? There has to then be a breach of that duty, meaning if you were responsible for holding the, uh, the bucket of water at all times and your arms got tired, you put the bucket of water down. Obviously this is an analogy of data and data security, not actual buckets of water since CISOs don't carry buckets around. And then was there harm and causation from that? Because you can't have negligence if you don't have harm. And was someone damaged by putting that bucket of water down? Was the flower petals or was the ground that maybe was owned by some other person or some vendor harmed by that? And then was it entirely your fault? What was the causation of that? Those were all the elements that go into negligence. But the hardest one, I mean, so they're all hard, just to be clear from a cyber, because you have to prove elements of each of them. There's literally hundreds of years of case law that go into Negligence is one of the oldest legal principles, common law principles out there. But the thing that's changed the most recently is just standard of care that, that applies to industry. And that's the one that I think is really interesting for CISOs and cyber professionals. Yeah. Now, as we look at that in, in the standard of care and our duties and things like that, if, for example, we take a look at the New York Department of Financial Services, they have a regulation that says responsibility of a CISO to enforce cybersecurity policies. Now, if I'm thinking out loud here, and this is a conversation I had with Ben Wright when we were SANS instructors together. And I would say, when I write a policy, gee whiz, I'm a retired Navy captain. I'm going to write like I'm the captain. Do this. Never do that. Always do that and be very definitive. But Ben said, eh, you don't really want to do that. You want to go ahead and make it your reasonable best effort. And I said, why? And he said, well, if you have a hard and fast policy that says, you know, thou shalt patch within 60 days, like you're coming down um, from the mountain and it's the 61st day. And now all of a sudden that vulnerability, you're a violation. And now you're in trouble as compared to, did you make a reasonable best effort? Yes, I did. What happened? Well, there was 14,000 of them, or there was a hurricane or a fire or something, and we did the best we could. So in a way, he had suggested putting some wiggle room in there. And that I learned from him. I said, okay, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that makes sense. So let me turn it over to you. Why does that make sense? Yeah. So I don't like the word wiggle room. I don't think I used that in my three years of law school or on the bar. I didn't say weasel words because that's another but, but, you, but you but you do want to, to build some flexibility in that because those policies increasingly are what you're going to be held accountable and the company is going to be held accountable to. And, and if we look at some, in fact, I'd say there's a very strong trend over the last five years that for every incident or when I have regulators come in, 
one of the first questions they're going to ask is, do you have an incident response plan and did you follow it? And so if in that incident response plan, you talk about a two-hour escalation to the cyber response team or to an executive functioning body, and, you, and it took you five hours or three hours because of the nature of your analysis or because you weren't sure what it was, or you didn't want to wake them up in the middle of the night, you wanted to wait until 6 a.m., not 4 a.m., then, you know, that, that could be a factor in terms of your insurance coverage or whether regulators find that you are because you're supposed to be following these policies, whether that is a compliance issue. And if you're a government contractor, then that could carry some weight with it. And if you're a regulated entity like a financial service company, that could also be a challenge. And that's why it's not that you want to have wiggle room, but the reality is, since we're picking on patch manage, the patch cycle is going to include testing and evaluation, is going to make sure that there's a business need and what is the what is the risk and what is the there's a whole lot of analysis that goes into patch and vulnerability management. And so you don't want to create a rule that doesn't match what you're doing in real life. That's why that needs to be in parity with each other because of the increasing use of these policies externally. And since you and I are both registered practitioners, that's something also that under the CMMC, the Cybersecurity Mature Modeling Certification, that's something that increasingly DOD is going to be looking at in their audits as well and any third-party audit that occurs. Yeah, and we were discussing a little bit of that in the pre-show. I didn't want to get too deep into CMMC now. I did an episode, I think, about a couple of years ago and probably have to come back again because they have CMMC 2.0 where they pretty much changed a whole bunch of stuff. So I'll stay out of that rat hole. But let's stay on the topic, though. Let's uh, be clear. You're the one who used the word rat hole. Describe CMMC. I did not use that I, term, nor am I. Oh, okay, fine. On whether yeah, that's it, entirely it, accurate or not. Uh, yeah. So uh, counsel, is that one word or two words? Anyway. <laughs> Capital or, or lowercase r. Lowercase, exactly. But we're talking really about policy and about the things that we don't want to be overly specific with respect to constraining the interpretation of what represents basically somebody doing their best efforts. And they really are trying hard and they're doing what they can to meet the compliance. And so sometimes one of the errors that I sometimes see is that people write super thick policies to get into details. Now, go back 20 years ago when I was doing a lot of speaking and I would ask people, Anybody here have a cybersecurity policy? We didn't call it back then, computer security policy. And a few hands would go up. Like how big is- I think we called it information security. Information security policy, something like that. And in 10 pages, 20 pages, it was like a bidding war, 33 pages. Mine is so big, no one's ever read the whole thing. And then it's, oh. But the reality is there's a bit more of a strategy to it. And at Sands, we taught the policy pyramid where we have the policy, which is your high level Here's the business requirement. And then we had standards and guidelines and procedures and, the, and even baselines that enforce that. So do you recommend that as a good way to make sure that we are not overly complicating or complexifying, if we're going to make, have fun words, our jobs as CISOs by making sure that when we have to comply with the policy, that the policy is written at a high enough level where A, it could be understood because the question I would ask is, what's the average attention span of an executive measured in pages, rounded up to the nearest whole integer? And the answer is usually about one. So that's what I could get an executive to read. I can't expect every executive to read a 68-page policy, and nor can I expect the rank-and-file employees to do that. So what are the benefits, if you will, to being able to segment out our details from the policy itself? So a couple thoughts. First, since you brought up and I was around and writing policies 15 and I guess 20 years ago, I would agree back then, I would 100% agree with your comments about not expecting executives to 
to read and understand that. But in, in 2023, I do expect executives to be able to, especially CEOs and even boards, to understand an incident response plan, even if it's double digit pages long, I, I expect them to be able to understand some of the basic privacy compliance around some of the CCPA or GDPR, some of these standards, they have to understand what the company's doing because there is a heightened requirement for executives and boards to make sure they're doing proper oversight of the company. And that's really changed. So I expect them to read more and understand more. I spend a lot of my time doing training and tabletops for executives, for CEOs and boards. And so I, I do think there is a, a huge shift that is occurring. So as they are able to read and consume more, and I don't want this to be offensive to any CEO or board member that's listening to this, we need to be able to give them more. So that's the first point. The second point I want to make is that to, to your point of what should be in a policy and what should be on in a, in, in what we used to call work or job orders or work plans or SOPs is two separate things. So, you know, how you do your job, how if you're a SOC manager. You know, what type of logs and what's the order of you, you checking every type of log or what gets into Splunk, what doesn't. All of those things should be covered in SOP or, or work plans. But when it comes to policies, I've never been one to count pages, but it does really need to, because I view these as external documents as much as they are internal and in that they're going to be used by others and viewed by others. And we talked about regulators, we talked about during litigation. But also insurance companies during the underwriting process are going to look at them. Vendors want to see them. Customers sometimes even want to see them. So that's where I do think it needs to provide enough detail around understanding what are the requirements and how you're meeting them. And sometimes what you don't want to do is it be so tech dependent that every time you switch a tool, which I know doesn't happen super frequently or quickly, but you don't want to have that be inscribed in there. Not that everyone's going to be going from one EDR solution to another, but you don't want it to be tech dependent, but you want it to at least be recognize the fact that you do have an EDR solution and that will be a part of the incident response process where you'll be using, if applicable, you'll be using those. And I use the word if applicable because that's the type of word that you would expect to see in those types of policies to before the, I guess, the wiggle room words. Okay, good. So there's some good terminology in there. And the other thing I mentioned to people is that sometimes getting a change in a policy could take a very long approval cycle. And therefore, if you've up, if you write your policy that you shall use this particular version of a tool, well, by the time the next version comes out, you've already started the policy change and that's ridiculous. So just here's a business requirement and then leave the implementation details up to the. But they should be reviewed, I would say, on an annual or every other year basis. And what you don't want to do is have them sit around and like many of my books behind me that, that have been there for far too long and haven't been read often enough. That's, that, that creates a lot of risk as well for companies. Or your policy for maintaining punched card inventory is still on the books somewhere. Yeah, that's a good point. When I write policy, I usually put a one-year review to make sure that I got it. And then afterwards, I'll advance to a two or three-year cycle, depending upon how much we expect it to change. And the other thing also is that I'd learned is I make all my policies sunset, basically saying, if you haven't completed a review and renewed this thing in three years, it's going to go away, which is a forcing function there to say, you got to go back and look at it because you know you need this policy to stay compliant. And you've got an internal requirement to say, hey, I'm going to look at it within a certain period of time or otherwise I fall out of compliance because my policy will expire. So in a way, it's a nudging function, say a forcing function to say we have to look at that. Any thoughts on that? Does it make good sense to, to make things expire? Is that pushing it a little bit too far? I'm not pushing it too far because it does 
you know, what one another area we haven't talked about this yet that sort of these policies come under a lot of review is during any sort of transaction. So mm-hmm. if you're getting bought or sold or you're buying or selling someone, that's often when they'll want to review what your privacy policy is, what your incident response plan or your cybersecurity policy, identity management policy. And during that time, you re- they really want to make sure that 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 they are both timely, that they describe the network that you're operating, that they don't talk about your AV solutions. If you haven't had an AV solution in 20 and in, in 10 years or however long it is, it's been focused on those. And, uh, and so that's really an, another important point around, around the policies and procedures where, well, at least un- unfortunately or fortunately, we spend a lot of time looking at them. As you mentioned, events, or in our case, sometimes when you apply for new insurance and you have to go through and they want to see this and do you do this. But one of the elements that I think a term that came up that wanted to get a little clarification from a legal perspective for our audience is reasonable assurance. What assurance is reasonable from a CISO perspective? But yeah, that's I, not real. <laughs> Anything can be reasonable. I would say if I was asked by any of my close CISO friends that they had to provide reasonable assurance, I would go back to ask them and say why. And you probably shouldn't. So you do have to provide certifications. Just to mm-hmm. explain, there are things that CISOs do need to be able to sort of sign off on. If you're a government contractor and you're implementing the state under 171, you may have to be able to provide a written certification. That's an important part of the process to make sure you are either implementing the requirements or if you haven't implemented them, you're documenting them and a plan of action of milestones and you have a system security plan. Those are all things that you can observe, document, manage, and do. Say, if you're asked to, like, during a transaction, say that, is their network good? Give some sort of thumbs up, thumbs down. To be honest, I guess that's what maybe what a reasonable assurance means. I actually don't use that term a lot, but what I would, what I would go back to them and say is, okay, what standard are you looking at? And what is the, uh, what is the requirement? Why, who, who is asking and what's it going to be used for? Because reasonability is any man's reasonability can change depending on where you stand. That's a good point. Now, one thought with relationships between the CISO and, let's say, the legal department. Now, often there's some back and forth or things like that, but I had talked to a few people recently that have said they report through the chief legal officer. And you know, somebody's like, what, what do you mean chief legal officer? There may be some value in that. If we think back uh, when Yahoo was acquired and then after the acquisition, after the checks were written, they said, oh, yeah, by the way, there's like 1.5 billion breached records or something like that. That required kind of a revaluation of the whole deal and is a little bit embarrassing. Now, when you evaluate a deal in an acquisition, something like that, obviously the legal team's involved, uh, the finance is involved, the executive management team is involved, but you don't often call on the CISO because they don't have a seat at the grown-ups table, so to speak. But were you to have the CISO report in through legal, it would be a perfectly reasonable thing to have a security valuation of an acquisition target be done under all the NDAs and things like that, who would be able to say, no, we don't want that, or looks good. Thoughts on that type of a relationship? Is there a trend toward that? Was that a one-off, or what do you think? Yeah, the whole governance of CISOs, of who they report to, I think is really fascinating because it's really changed over time. Early on, when we first created the CISO function, I remember when I first left the Department of Homeland Security, my old boss, who was a, a senior assistant secretary over there, called me about a week later and said he'd like to get a gathering together of all the CISOs of all the pipeline companies, because I work a lot with pipeline companies, and knew a lot of them. And I was like, sorry, boss, I can't do it. And he was like, what? You're not, I'm not paying you, so you can't do these things anymore? Are you, you know, what changed? And I'm like, boss, there are no CISOs in pipeline companies. But there were a couple of security directors. There were some like other people that had IT security by their title, but there were no CISOs back, and this is 2007, so 
Back then, there were no CISOs or around then, around no CISOs in the pipeline companies. Since we've created this function, I think initially they were all reporting up through CIOs and people were very concerned about there being this inherent conflict of interest because they were inherently watching the functionality that the IT security, the IT director or CIO was doing. And then, and so then they started reporting to others everywhere from a CFO to a lot of reported to GCs, a lot of reported directly to COOs. I do think there's a trend now that they're realizing that I'm not calling the CISO a dynamite handler. But, uh, but I am saying they do deal with a lot of sort of high risk in information during incidents, that analysis that takes place. And there is, even if there's not a solid line, there's a dotted line often between CISOs and, and GCs. And I am seeing an interesting trend where CISOs are going back to reporting to CIOs, where really, because they have common infrastructure, if you think about everything from a call center to a help desk, they're using those common resources and being able to integrate the security function with some of the IT functions. That is the direction that sort of networks that security that the technology is going. So I do think there's some logic and I think we're in less of a place than we were 15 years ago when we thought there was this inherent conflict that every time there's an incident, a CIO is going to sit on the CISO and it won't see the light of day. I just don't see that happening anymore. A number of companies I work with where the CISO reports to the GC and it's a great relationship. Every now and then I have to do a little bit of Romulan Klingon decoding of, of the conversation between them. But mostly I think that actually could work well because they both, ultimately I view GCs as chief risk officers for the company, even if that's not their title. They're the ones that understand the legal risk and the compliance risk. And that's sort of, in many ways, the analysis and the support that a CISO needs. And I'm very focused on the idea that CISOs need support because they shouldn't be doing any of these things on their own. No CISO is an island. That'll be my new RSA t-shirt this year that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a hashtag and design for. Well, there you go. Sounds good. Now, from the perspective of a CISO, as they say, since you've had a chance to work on the technology side and also over here on the legal side and worked pretty much all the positions around the playing field or a lot of them. Any specific advice you might offer to CISOs to say, here are things that you can, that will help you do right, or you'll do better when it comes to legal, either building a bridge with the legal department, if you're not reporting to them or coming up with some common communications, what is it that the best CISOs could be doing that would reduce their legal liability and risk, enhance their organization's position relative to legal situations? That's a great question. The first thing that all CISOs should be doing is know your job. And what I mean by that is before you take the job and as you're coming in, if you can get a description of your position, if you can get what are the responsibilities for the job, if you can get a position description, if you can actually get a job contract, which I know not all companies, a lot of them are at will employees, but if you can get a contract, that's great. If you can also understand what are the resources and requirements of that job. So are you coming in to manage a network that has 250,000 endpoints and they're giving you half a million dollars to manage that, then you may want to think about whether or not that's the right job for you. And so you really need to come in understanding what is your budget and people, and that's what I mean by resources, coming into the job and what are their requirements, both business and legal. And so I think those conversations should happen before you even sign a contract, get a paycheck, get a badge or, or get your credentials. But once you're there, I do think there's two, two things that, that I've seen effective CISOs do. First is everyone talks about spending the first 60 days getting to know your, your organization. And I think most people think of that as get to know your network and the people that work for you. Actually, I, I go back to what we talked about earlier. 
I think you need to spend the first 60 days understanding the environment that you operate in. The business environment is really critical to what you're doing. So understanding the actual business and how they make money, because you are, except for a few CISOs, I know you are not going to be a profit center for the company. You're going to be a cost mm -hmm. center. So understanding how the company makes money so you can understand where the cyber risk is, because that's going to be tied to it. And then understanding the company's compliance culture, which you're going to really get out of somewhere between the CRO, the GC, and the CAO, if you have a CAO, and really understanding what is the risk tolerance of a company so you can understand that. And then I think beginning to understand what are the tools. I think those are the, I'm just going to assistant MNGRs think about input outputs. Those are the inputs that you need to really produce the right types of security controls, security management and security professionals. So if you don't have that going in and you start thinking about, okay, this network needs to look like my last gig's network where we're, you know, certain company EDR and we're using a seam to review these things, but you don't really understand what the company does, then I think you could be managing the wrong risk. And I've seen that happen a lot. And then the last piece from the bottom up with the sort of continuance of ransomware, it's really understanding what is in your network and what is not in your network. What are the pieces that you're responsible for and not? Every CISO has some portion of a network, whether it's a lab, whether it's something that's a development environment or a test environment, that, that they get the sort of that hands off, that, that, that's not your responsibility. So understanding what's in and what's out is also really important, I think. I think those are some really good recommendations. And this has really been a fascinating episode. I know you've got a commitment coming up that I need to go ahead and wrap up. But if anybody wants to get in touch with you, if they have any further questions, uh, do you welcome that? People of course, reach you. I, I do. I get paid by the word and I talk for a living. And since I'm also a teacher, I love to talk to people, especially security professionals. I've been going to for most of my professional career, RSA and DEF CON. So happy to grab coffee and drinks there. But my email is E-W-O-L-F at Kroll, C-R-O-W-E-L-L.com or the other Kroll. And wow. my firm's name is Kroll and Mooring, and my phone number is 202-369-5795. Feel free to hit me up on any of those things and want signal as well. Thank you so very much. This has been fascinating. And to our audience, thank you for listening to CISO Tradecraft. If you've enjoyed today's show, then we ask you to give us a five-star review if you think we're worth it. That helps other people find the show. And if you're watching us on YouTube, click a like and subscribe. We're trying to build up our YouTube. As you know, we're now visual starting the beginning of this year. And we'd like to let other CISOs and security leaders know about CISO Tradecraft. So feel free to share with others. Let people know about our LinkedIn page. Follow us there. We've got lots more than simply just the podcast themselves. So thank you very much for being part of our show. My name is G. Mark Hardy, your co-host. And until next time, stay safe out there.